This morning's scripture reading is from the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions for some of the firstborn of the flock, of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you, do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must overrule it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's funny, if you uh, play back the last six words of that scripture in the last line, Land of Nod, east of Eden, uh, describing where Cain ended up after his crime. Both of those three-word phrases have uh, become titles for something in the 20th century. So, Land of Nod, somewhat strangely, became the title of a children's furniture company owned by um, Crate and Barrel. I don't think they were trying to allude to the, the, the first murder in, in choosing that title. I think... Their marketing team just thought it sounded cool. Um, But the second phrase, East of Eden, is obviously the title of Steinbeck's famous novel. And he, of course, did mean to allude to to this passage. Uh, East of Eden is his retelling of the Cain and Abel story. So uh, Steinbeck, obviously one of the giants of American 20th century literature, also happens to be Brittany's favorite author and also happens to be a Californian, where she and I are both from. So we went and visited his museum and birthplace years ago and you know, saw all the, the sites around the Salinas Valley. Uh, but I hadn't read East of Eden until a year ago or so. I'd read some of his shorter stuff, but I'd never read this. And it's worth it. it it's worth the effort. The, the James Dean movie is worth the effort, too. Uh, but the book is especially worth the effort. And what the book did for me was make my heart break for Cain in a way that it never had before. Because Cain is the protagonist in the story. Uh, He's not the villain. Abel doesn't even have a speaking part. Cain is the main character. Cain is us. But things don't go well for him. 
it's a tragedy. And what I want to look at this morning is how can we, how can we keep the same thing from happening to us? So Steinbeck takes 500 pages to try to retell this story that in the original is less than a page long, and he still doesn't plumb the depths of it. You know, he could have gone on another 500 pages and not gotten to the bottom of it. And we won't get to the bottom of it this morning either, but we'll, we'll do our best to at least make a start of it. Cain's problem, in a word, is sin. But sin, the passage shows us, is not what we think it is. So, three sections to this morning's sermon, three things the passage teaches us about sin. First, what is it? Second, how do you beat it? And third, what happens if you lose? First, what is it? Second, how do you beat it? And third, what happens if you lose? Those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, what is it? What is sin? And we'll start the way we often start when we're trying to define something, by defining it negatively, by saying what it's not. So what sin is not, what it is emphatically not, is wrong choices, is uh, moral infractions, you know, uh, making a bad decision of your own free will. And the question I get a lot as a pastor is, okay, so is it a sin to do X? Now, Listen again to the question. Is it a sin to do this particular thing? Well, everything about that question is wrong. If I could do one thing this morning, this sermon would be a success if we could all walk out of here never thinking in terms of a sin again, never thinking in terms of sins, plural, again. Because what the Bible says is sin is not these, these isolated choices we make of our own free will. And I want to read you something about this, something that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. He says this. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Yet the evil I do not want to do This I keep on doing. It's 2,000 years ago, and there's not a person in here that can't relate to that. It's not just you. I mean, I know that you know that everybody's, you know, messed up and nobody's perfect. But do you know, do you realize that the person sitting in front of you and the person sitting behind you and the person sitting next to you does stuff they don't want to do all the time and they can't stop? That's weird. That is weird that we all do that. That doesn't make sense. It requires... An explanation. You know, it's become so normal to us that we just take it for granted, but it's strange. And it requires an explanation. And Paul says there's really only one satisfying explanation for that. So let let me keep reading the same passage I was just reading. He says, Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. It is sin living in me that does it. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another power at work in me, waging war against my mind and making me a prisoner. What a wretched man I am. It's the title of this series we've been in, Spiritual Warfare. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There is a power inside of me waging war 
against me, making me a prisoner. That's what sin is, according to the Bible. Not an isolated bad choice, but a power of chaos, of pain, of destruction, of rebellion that has been unleashed in the world is operating upon you and even within you. And that's what God says to Cain in the passage. It's a remarkable conversation between God and Cain. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, be careful. Watch out. Because this, this metaphor he uses, he says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And the images of that word crouching is only used of like a predatory animal, like a lion or a tiger waiting to pounce, waiting to, to take you out. God says, that's what sin is, Cain. It's trying to take you out. You say, well, does sin really take people out like that? I mean, aren't we kind of making it, you know, overly dramatic? Does that really happen? Well, of course it happens. It's every 365 days a year. One thing that the newspaper always has in common is there's always a story of somebody being taken out by sin. Somebody losing their job or losing their family or going to jail because of some scandal or some crime. And it's not just criminals, and it's not just scandals of people in high places. You know, you, you say, well, I can see how a famous person would get taken out by sin, you know, because it's in the newspaper. Good news for me is I'm not famous. Well, it's going to be the same way for you. You know, I've seen all, plenty of people that aren't famous lose everything because of sin also. That's just not on the front page, but it happens all the time. Of course, sin takes people out. And that's what happens with Cain. All of a sudden, he loses everything. What that means, if that's true, if it's true that sin is predatory, what that means is that the way that we think about sin has to change. Because it can no longer be this thing of uh, like a, a moral improvement project, you know, like a New Year's resolution. It's like, I, I really got to sin less. Well, if somebody's trying to kill you, you don't make it a New Year's resolution to not let them. You know, it's, it's quite a bit more intense than that. And what Paul says over and over again in the New Testament is he says there's only one thing to do to sin. If sin's trying to kill you, your only option is to kill it first. You have to put it to death, he says. Put it to death, put it to death, put it to death. Which is not, putting it to death is a specific violent action. It's not running from it. It's not avoiding from it. It's taking violent action against it. Which, you know, at first sounds like not Christian. We're so used to thinking of you know, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Or Martin Luther King and following Jesus obviously advocated nonviolence. And nonviolence usually is the right answer, but it's not here. Sometimes violence is called for. And when you're going against an irrational, chaotic force that's trying to kill you, if a, if a wild animal pounces on you, nonviolence isn't going to work. If cancer is attacking your body, nonviolence isn't going to work. Because the one thing you know for sure is that one of you is going to die. Either it's going to die or you're going to die. And it's just a fight to see who kills the other one first. It's a fight to the death. And I think that for some of you this morning, you know, regardless of the rest of the sermon, some of you are here this morning just to hear this just to hear that life is a war and the stakes are your soul and you've been lulled into this peacetime mentality which is exactly where sin wants you to be and your position is extremely precarious if you don't wake up and develop a certain mean streak, develop some aggression, be filled with adrenaline 
and figure out that you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight if you want to survive against sin. That's the first thing. It's the first section of the sermon. What is sin? It's not mistakes. It's not slip-ups. It's this force. It's this supernatural power that is trying to take you out. So, it takes us to the second section of the sermon. If that's what sin is, then how do you beat it? How do you win against sin? This section will have a couple of subpoints. Three steps. Three steps to beating sin. So the first is to realize its opening move. Any serious chess player, if they're going up against a, a big-time opponent, they'll spend months or even years studying that opponent's games from the past and especially focusing on the opening moves, the early moves. Because in chess, you're, you're always trying to set something up 10, 15, 20 moves down the line, and you got to see the way your opponent's mind works. And they do that, and it doesn't look that big a deal. Okay, so the pawn goes there. Who cares? Well, they're setting something up. It's going somewhere. If you're going to beat sin, you have to realize it's opening move. And what this passage shows us is the same thing last week's passage shows us, actually, is that sin's opening move is always the same. So that helps, but you got to recognize what it is. And what sin never does, again, we're repeating last week, same thing we talked about last week. What sin never does is it never never starts by trying to get you to do something immoral. Sin never comes to you while you're having a nice day at work and says, hey, why don't you kill your brother? It doesn't work like that. Instead, what it does is it always begins by getting you to question God's law or God's love or God's command or God's way of life in some area where morality isn't even part of the equation. So we saw last week with Adam and Eve, it says eat this fruit. Even though God said don't eat the fruit, eat the fruit. Well, is it immoral to eat the fruit? No, of course not. Does anybody get hurt? Are they hurting anyone else, I should say, when they eat the fruit? Of course not. But it's still sin because the essence of sin is not being bad. It's lack of trust. It's being self-sufficient. It's not believing God has your best interest at heart. So it's the exact same thing this week. That was the first sin in the human race, eating the fruit. The second sin in the human race is not the murder. The murder is, is an afterthought. The big sin in the story, the second sin of the human race, is Cain refusing to give God a good offering. We talked about this in the fall. God says, give me part of the first portion of your uh, crop, you know, before you know how big your yield is going to be, so it's a little bit risky. And Cain says, well, I think I'm going to hang back and wait to find out how much I have. It doesn't matter to God, you know, whether I give it to him now or give it to him later. So let me make sure I have enough first, and then I'll give to God. Well, again, not immoral. Not immoral to give your offering at the wrong time, but it's still sinful because it's a lack of trust. Cain is saying, I know God said I should do this, but can I really trust him? Don't I? I really have to look out for myself. And that's where it starts. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal to not trust God's command? Because God is only looking for one thing. So in the book of Hebrews, uh, thousands of years after this event, also in Scripture, the New Testament, the author of Hebrews is commenting upon this story. He's looking back at Cain and Abel. And he says the difference between Cain and Abel is that Abel had faith and Cain didn't. Well, so that gets to another misconception. We said earlier the misconception that sin is doing something bad where it's not, it's lack of trust. But here's the other, even bigger misconception, which is what is faith? People think of faith as belief. Like, I have faith. I believe in God. Not faith. 
doesn't count as faith at all. Because the author of Hebrews says uh, Abel had faith, Cain didn't. Well, Cain believed in God, Cain's talking to him. Faith is not believing in God, it's trusting in God. It's believing that God will take care of you. That's faith. And that's what Cain didn't have. And that same passage of Hebrews says, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, what is God looking for from you? Not a perfect moral record. He's looking for your trust. There's only one thing you have to do to please God. There's only one question God is asking you, and that is, do you trust me? And Cain says no. And that's sin. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's sin. And sin always goes for the jugular because it knows that's the only thing God cares about. And it's one objective. Sin's sole objective in your life is to kill faith and to make you doubt God's love, to make you doubt that God really has your best interest at heart. That's the opening move. That's the opening move that you have to realize. It's always going to get you to try to do something that's not necessarily immoral, but that makes you doubt God's love, makes you doubt God's commandment. The second thing, first you realize it's opening move. Second, you remember where it leads. You remember it's endgame. And what we saw last week in the passage from Genesis 3, same thing we see here, repeated over and over again in Scripture, which is that the end of sin, where sin leads, is always to death. Now, uh, death in the Bible has a lot broader definition than we think of it today. So we think of death as like you stop breathing, you're you know no pulse, you get cremated, you're dead. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. For for the Bible, death is just the op the absence of life, the opposite of life. So life is happiness, life is relationships, life is being connected to God. Death is loneliness. Death is deep and abiding unhappiness. Death is unfulfillment. And that's where this ends up for Cain, is he, he ends up deeply unhappy and unfulfilled. It says his face was downcast and he was angry. And that's where sin always takes you. You know, I, I'm not talking about what it does to other people. So the appeal here is not uh, don't give in to sin because it'll hurt some other people in your life. It's, I'm talking purely in terms of self-interest. What does sin do to you? It always, it obviously, it led to Abel's death, but it also leads to your death. It also leads to you being unhappy. So, to take a kind of real life example, uh, think of something that's not immoral, very small, but very prevalent, or arguably not immoral. I'm thinking of uh, a guy looking at pornography. So, you know, you could, I mean, I, actually, it probably is immoral, and people do get hurt. You know, the pornography industry is really unscrupulous, and a lot of people get hurt. But let's just say for the sake of argument that nobody got hurt, which I think is the mentality that the guys have is, well, what? it's not hurting anybody. What's the harm here? Well, the harm is, the, the harm is that God has given you a wife to enjoy. And all of a sudden, sin gets you to do this thing where you're cut off, from your wife. You can no longer enjoy your wife. There's a wedge driven between you and your wife. What is it doing? Stealing life from you. Bringing death into your life. One click at a time. When you, my picture of death, my picture of hell, is a guy in a dark room with the, the blue light of the screen on his face, eyes glazed over, just clicking through one click at a time, 
and can't stop. That's death. That's hell. That's unhappiness. And that's what sin is trying to get to do to every one of us, where God gives us a real life, a life that can bring joy and fulfillment. And sin says, do this other thing instead. Nobody's going to get hurt. And your life, your very life is taken away from you. And you're so unhappy. The third thing is to recognize that there's always a way out. There's always a door. There's always a turning point. And that's what God says to Cain. He comes to Cain. And so let's rewind a little bit. What, what, what sin is trying to do is it's trying to create this cascade of negative emotions. So the first negative emotion it creates is God says, do this thing. And sin comes and creates a negative emotion and says, no, you don't want to do that. That's going to be too hard. So you've got this negative emotion that you've got to deal with in one way or another. And sin says, well, the way to feel better is to just say to God, I'm not going to do it. And so you say, yeah, that'll make me feel better. I'll just say to God, I won't do it. Or I'll, I'll change it a little bit. So Cain says, I know how I'll feel better. I'll just give God half an offering. I'll give God a late offering. Well, he does that, and he feels worse. And so God comes to him, and God says, like this gentle father, he says, Cain, look, I see you're angry. I see you're downcast. Your face has fallen. I see you're depressed. He says, this isn't complicated. It's not rocket science. Just do what is right, and you'll feel better. But if you don't do what is right, if you keep giving in to sin, you're just going to feel worse and worse and worse. I know I've been talking about my girls a lot lately, but this I have to do it again here. Not, not necessarily a story, but just this is... There's no story in the Bible that I think about more often than the story of Cain and Abel because this story plays itself out in our house on a daily basis. I mean, it's every day. First, just the violence between siblings um, and the fact that that's not about, it's never about the other sibling. You know, Cain's not mad at Abel. He's mad at God. He doesn't even talk to Abel. He has a, Cain has a fight with God, and then he goes out and kills his brother. Well, I see that happen every day in our house, you know. They argue with me and then go out and hit their sister. So there's that element of it, but then there's this, also this element of the, the progression and the turning point that you can take or you cannot take. Because we see it happen in our house every day where it's some command, some rule, something you have to do, you know, this chore you have to do. And the sin comes in, you know, it just it goes across their face and you can see it enter their body. And they just, just no, I'm not going to do that. And they're unhappy. And I've had this conversation with our kids thousands of times where I sit down and I say, look, it's your choice. I see that you're unhappy. All you have to do to be happy, this goes away immediately if you just do what's right. But if you do not, if you do not do what is right, then sin is crouching at your door. I don't say it quite like that. (laughs) But I do say that. What we say in our house is we call it the monster. I say, I can see that the monster is trying to take over you. I can see it inside you. And it's trying to make you do bad. And you can beat the monster. You can, you can get it out of you. But you have to decide. God says to Cain, you could master it. And that's the uh, word in the whole story more than any other that, that captivates Steinbeck. Steinbeck has three or four pages of just it's just Steinbeck's commentary on Genesis 4 and the, and the uh, 
form of a dialogue. He has all these guys sitting around late at night drinking whiskey, talking back and forth about what this Hebrew word for master at Timshel means and how remarkable it is that there's this opportunity. There's this turning point where after Cain has already done wrong, he's already given in to sin, his face has fallen, he's angry, there's a moment where he could still turn back. He could just submit to God's rules and submit to God's limits and say, okay, and all of that unhappiness would go away. So that's how you beat sin. You got to know its opening move. You got to remember what it's trying to do to you. You got to recognize that there's always going to be an opportunity. But Cain does not take that opportunity. So that takes us to the, to the third and final section of the sermon, which is what if you lose? That's how to beat sin, but what if you lose? What happens when you lose? Which is what we see happen with Cain. You know, God comes and says, Cain, the problem is you're not submitting to my limits. Just do what's right. You'll feel better. And sin comes and says, you know, you know what the real problem is, Cain? The problem is that you're halfway there. You've started to rebel against God's limits, but you haven't gone far enough. You're still letting him guilt trip you. And what you need to do is just go all the way. And so he kills his brother. And the only way of making sense of that, why does he kill Abel? He feels so bad. Why does he kill Abel? There is only one possible reason that he could have killed Abel, and that's because he truly believed. Sin had gotten him to truly believe that killing Abel would make him feel better. Abel, he's the problem. That's the problem. If I just kill him, all these bad feelings will go away. And of course they don't. You know, Then he's at the point of no return. Then he really has lost everything because he didn't take the opportunity for turning around. So what happens then? Well, it, it puts God in an interesting position. And what you see God doing in this passage is doing this really interesting dance. Because on the one hand, God can't just turn a blind eye when Cain does the exact wrong thing. And those of you who are parents, you, you know the same thing. And what he says, he says, Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. In other words, it's, did you think I wasn't going to hear? Did you think I wasn't going to see? You just killed your brother. He's lying there dead in a pool of his own blood. I can't just pretend that didn't happen. So there's that. But then on the other hand, he, he does this weird thing where he, he marks Cain for mercy. So what he could have done, what he arguably should have done is, is said, fine, let the natural consequences happen now. Let the chips fall where they may. And that's what you see Cain say is he says, this is gonna, whoever finds me is going to kill me. God could have let that happen. Instead, he marks Cain for mercy. He puts a, a mark on Cain saying, Cain, you're protected. He puts him under a curse, so he still punishes him. There's still judgment. Yet he doesn't allow the full scope of punishment to fall on Cain. Why is that? It's self-contradictory, honestly. And you see the exact same self-contradictory approach all through the Old Testament where it's justice with one hand, mercy with the other. Justice with one hand, mercy with the other. Almost like God is, is fighting himself. What's that about? The reason that God doesn't allow Cain to experience the full consequences of his own sin, the reason he doesn't give him full justice, is because he knows that that justice is going to fall on somebody else. So Cain says, I'm going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Jesus, thousands of years later, says, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A restless wanderer. Cain says, Whoever finds me will kill me. Jesus says, 
whatever you're going to go do, do it quickly. And they come and find him in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and kill him. Cain says, I'm going to be cast out from your presence. And Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The punishment that Cain deserved and that we deserve falls on Christ. And what that does, you know, you've probably heard that before if you've been around church at all. And so the question is, well, who cares? What, what does that do? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because Christ, as the payment for sin, Christ as the one who, who, who on the cross sin is killed in his body, what that changes is the basis of your forgiveness. One of the most common problems in the Christian life is people not feeling forgiven. You know, they say, well, I can see the Bible says I'm forgiven, and I've heard the pastor tell me I'm forgiven, but I did this thing, I, I lost, I fought against sin, and I lost, sin took me out, and I've confessed it, but I don't feel forgiven. How do you deal with that? The verse that's often quoted kind of as, as comfort is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason the verse doesn't do what it's supposed to do is because we fail to notice the, the key word, which is the word just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It doesn't, actually doesn't fit. What it should say is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. But instead it says just. He is faithful and fair, faithful and right, faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Why is it just? Again, back to the book of Hebrews. What Hebrews says is the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel cry out for? Justice. But what does the blood of Christ cry out for? Not mercy, but justice. And what Christ says to God on our behalf, Hebrews says Christ is interceding for us in heaven. What Christ says to God every time you sin, every time I sin, is not, uh, oh, Father, please, oh, please, oh, please, you know, just this once, will you forgive Ryan again? What he says is, look, I spilled my blood. I paid for that sin already. I'm not begging for mercy. I'm demanding justice because it's not fair to take two penalties for the same sin. When you see Christ on the cross... What that does is it enables you to do what you couldn't otherwise do, which is to kill sin. Because you can't do it on your own. You know, you think about the classic example of trying to kill sin on your own is uh, sticking with American literature, the Scarlet Letter. You know, the guy that, uh, the, the minister who has the affair with Hester Prynne, the lady with the A, and he's whipping himself in private, trying to beat this sin out of him, trying to kill sin in his own life. And it doesn't work. What he hadn't seen is Christ being whipped for him. Christ on the cross having sin killed in his own body. And in that passage we began with, where Paul says, what am I going to do because there's this power within me, it's making me do stuff I don't want to do, what a wretched man that I am. The next line is, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to win more frequently, 
we see the pain and the death and the destruction and the loneliness that sin brings into our life, the way it steals life from us, the way it steals our joy. So by the power of your Spirit, we ask that you would help us to become more victorious, to win an increasing percentage of the time. But God, when we don't, when we lose, when we fall, I ask that you would turn our eyes toward Christ and specifically toward the cross, that we would see Jesus paying on our behalf, that we would see justice being served, but not us that has to bear the cost or the brunt of it, but him instead. And that in seeing that, we would gain a new power from a new source to put sin to death. We pray these things in his name. Amen.